All right, let's turn in our Bibles, if you would, tonight to Psalm 143, Psalm 143 this evening, and we continue our study here in the book of Psalms, coming down to the close of this study, just a couple more Psalms to cover before we conclude the study. Psalm 143 tonight, and we'll read the Psalm in just a moment. Many of the Psalms address trials that the psalmist was going through and the prayers that he prayed surrounding those trials. Psalm 143 is certainly one of those psalms, but in this case, it's a little bit unique in that the psalmist seems to recognize that the trial he is going through is actually a consequence of his own sin. And he's understanding that what he's dealing with is the fruit of poor decisions that he's made before. Psalm 143 is a psalm of David. It's believed to have been written at the time that David was fleeing from his son, Absalom, who had rebelled against him and overthrown the kingdom and declared himself to be the king. David had to flee for his life along with those who were faithful to him. David saw the kingdom turn in just a moment of time from being firmly in his grasp to all of a sudden not knowing who was friend or foe. Some of his most trusted advisors and soldiers went over to the side of Absalom. David had to hide. Here he is as an old man, and his own son is trying to kill him and take away the kingdom from him. And certainly in this psalm, there's a a tone of penitence. In fact, there are seven psalms which are noted as penitential psalms. Among them are some that we would recognize, like Psalm 51. And this is the seventh of those seven that is often thought of as a penitential psalm, or a confession of sin and asking God for restoration. Certainly, the, the penitence in Psalm 143 is, is more subtle than it is in Psalm 51, where it's very forthright and very outright. Psalm 143 is more focusing on the burden that the psalmist is, is bearing, but there certainly is a recognition of his own sinfulness before God, which we'll see in just a moment. And what we see coming out even even more than that, and the thing that is most emphasized in Psalm 143, is that the psalmist is completely dependent upon the Lord for his deliverance. And you'll see that as we read through the psalm. So let's begin reading in Psalm 143, verse 1. I've titled the message tonight, Overwhelmed and Asking. David writes, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. 
I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. I like that phrase at the end of verse 11. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. You do understand tonight that if we are so blessed to experience the deliverance of God in our lives, it will be because of His righteousness and not because of our own righteousness. It is of God's mercy that we are not consumed. And that is the reminder of Psalm 143. Now, for the purpose of our study tonight... We're going to look at the first two verses, first of all, and see the psalmist cry. Then in verses 3 and 4, we'll see him describe his condition. In verses 5 and 6, we'll see him concentrating upon some things. And then in verses 7 through 12, we'll see him or hear him calling to the Lord in some very specific ways in his time of trial. Notice with me, first of all, the first two verses, his cry. And it says there that he is talking to the Lord and he asks God, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Reminding us that the psalmist was dependent completely upon the Lord in the situation in which he found himself. Here he is as if in fact this is taking place when Absalom is pursuing him. David is a man who has known the height of blessing and fame and, and all of the good things of life. He also has known the, the bottom, if you will, of trial and difficulty. And now he finds himself again in this place. And he realizes and recognizes that there is no deliverance for him apart from the hand of God. And so he cries out to God and he asks God, he's... he's uh, insisting, if you will, that is, the, that is the sense of the verbs here, hear my prayer. So he's crying out with an intensity and he's pleading with God to hear him as he prayed. Now, as you think about that, I want you to ask yourself this question tonight. Do you and I realize what a privilege and a blessing it is to be heard by the God of heaven? I'm, I fear sometimes we go to prayer without even giving a thought to this, to this truth, to this blessing, that if the God of heaven hears our prayers, we are the most blessed of all people. For him to pay attention to what we are saying. Unfortunately, you and I can find ourselves taking prayer for granted and just assuming, well, he has to hear me, he will hear me, instead of really 
depending upon him in prayer. So he cries to God. He asks God to hear his prayer. And then he repeats that same sentiment with this phrase, give ear to my supplications. And again, this is a common phrase that is used by the psalmist, as we, especially here in these last several psalms. We've seen this. He's earnestly asking God for some things. We're going to see the intensity of his prayer a little later. And he wants to know, he wants to be sure that God is listening. He wants to make sure that God is giving him his ear. You and I ought to have this desire as well in prayer. And too often we rush into prayer, not thinking and not even uh, hoping or even, even considering whether God is listening or whether our heart is prepared to pray. We just go through the motions of prayer sometimes we find that we're just speaking words into the air. We're just repeating things that we've heard other people say, or we're trying to impress someone with the words that we're using. But what David needed most of all is that he needed to know that God was hearing his prayer. Amen. Have you ever thought or, or considered the perspective that an atheist has about prayer? An atheist thinks, well, what is the point of prayer? There is no God. Why would you pray to him? He's not listening. He's not... they, They would say, well, I've heard lots of people talk about prayer. It seems like God never does anything. Now, how sad it would be if we as believers, practically speaking, have the same approach to prayer as an atheist does. We need to believe that God hears and answers prayer. And we need to prepare our heart and make sure that we have God's ear. This was of utmost importance to the psalmist. He wanted to know that God was listening. Then notice in verse 1, he's asking for the Lord to deal with him according to two of God's primary attributes. First of all, he says, in thy faithfulness, answer me. Tonight... I want to remind you that we have a faithful God. And that word faithful means that the way God always has been, he will be. We can anticipate that God will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is a wonderful thing because it reminds us that God is not in a bad mood on Monday because the weekend is over. Uh, God doesn't somehow get... Get, get grumpy with us and say, well, today I'm not in a prayer-answering mood. He's always the same. He is not like us. Amen. His attributes will always be the same. So he, David comes to God on the basis of God's faithfulness, and he asks God to answer his prayers according to his faithfulness. Now, God's faithfulness also gives to us certain promises and assurances, And these promises and assurances, because they are founded upon the faithfulness of God, give us a strong assurance when we come to God in prayer that he will not only hear, but also that he will answer. And so David says, I'm coming to you, Lord, on the basis of your faithfulness. The dependable nature of God tonight gives us strong consolation. Not only God's faithfulness, though, He is appealing to God on the basis of his righteousness. And God's righteousness speaks about his justice. And 
In this sense, you'll notice as we go on, and, and we'll see this in the next verse, actually, he's not asking God to pour out his judgment on him, but he's asking God to behave towards him in righteousness and equity. And no doubt, in this case, David is aware of attributed righteousness, and he himself is depending upon the provision of God and the way that God sees him. In the New Testament, we know, for instance, that when a person is in Christ, they are made righteous. They are declared righteous. And then God's attribute of righteousness, his justice, demands that he would deal with us in the same way that he deals with his son, because he sees in those who are believers the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is a phenomenal truth of justification and reminds us of how blessed we are if we are saved. Now, at the same time, though he is appealing to God on the basis of his righteousness, he also is aware that what he deserves is for God to pour out his judgment upon him. And he does not want to be dealt with on that basis, which is what brings us then to verse number two. And he says this, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. So the third thing about David's cry is he recognized that he had a need to experience mercy from the Lord. So he pleads with God and he asks God, not to enter into judgment. In other words, he's asking God, do not hold me to account for all the wrong that I have done. Now, lest you think that David is asking something out of the ordinary, I remind you tonight of the truth of his follow-up statement, which is that if we were to stand before God and he were to enter into judgment upon us apart from Christ, there's not a one of us that could stand. There's not a one of us that would pass that judgment. So all of us are dependent upon God's mercy, just like David was. But in verse 2, we see David making a recognition of the fact that he does not deserve for God to deliver him. He's not coming to God saying, I'm so much more righteous than everyone else. Please, please treat me better than other people but rather he's coming asking for God's mercy. He's asking for God to be long-suffering with him, and I believe that uh, he'll use the word a little bit later, loving-kindness, to refer to how he wants God to behave towards him. But there's a reminder tonight that there's no way that any living man could stand the penetrating eyes of God. If we're not hid in Christ... If we do not have the righteousness of Christ attributed to us, then we have no right to stand before this God. But David had a confidence. He had a confidence in the provision of God. For him, he had faith in the coming provision that God would make, that the, the, the way that God would provide for a covering of sins. We look back on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. David looked forward to the provision that God would make, and he recognized his need for mercy from the Lord. Any man that asserts that he could stand before the judgment of God and pass the judgment is a fool. 
I've encountered many such people who insist that when they stand before God, he's going to call them righteous and he's going to usher them into heaven. That's a very foolish thing to say. So we see the humility of David, and yet we see his hopefulness that God will deliver. So he cries to God. But then in verses 3 and 4, he describes a little bit about his condition. Real quickly, notice he says that the enemy hath persecuted my soul. We notice that the persecution he faced had affected not just his body, but it had affected his inner man. It had affected him to the deepest core of his being. Now, as he's referring to the enemy, it is possible that he's referring to Absalom, but certainly we could make an application tonight that there is a darker and more dangerous enemy behind the earthly opponent. We certainly could have earthly opponents. We could have enemies of the cause of Christ, enemies of the people of God, men, women, uh, human beings who are opposed to the work of God and the people of God. But understand that behind those physical enemies, there is always a spiritual enemy. And this is the real enemy. This This is the real enemy of our soul. All believers will experience the efforts of Satan to persecute our soul and to draw our attention away from hope in Christ. Whatever the circumstances that may be going on in your life, Satan has a way of whispering in your ear and tempting you and trying to draw you away from your hope in Christ. And so the the psalmist cries out and he says, The enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. The efforts of the enemy are such that David said that he was failing in his strength. He had no ability to deliver himself. The enemy that David was facing was a powerful enemy. Tonight, the enemy that you and I face is a powerful enemy. Without the intervention of our God, we would be completely crushed by the power of our enemy. The only thing that stands between us and the power of Satan is the power of God in our lives. That is how dependent we are upon the power of God. We have no strength in and of ourselves to resist the power of Satan. Then he says in verse 3, He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. What he's describing here is the confusion and sorrow that comes with the attack of the enemy. To dwell in darkness means he doesn't know which way to go. He's confused about which way to turn. He doesn't know what's in the future. Where am I going from here? He's heavy with sorrow and grief because of all that has happened. In fact, he's so weighed down and so confused that he describes himself as someone that has been long dead. What he's using, his, the phrase that he's using here is, is noting that he has lost hope. He, he's come to a place where like you would not expect someone who's been dead for a long time. You don't expect them to get up out of the grave. You don't expect them to come back to life. That, that's just not going to happen. Their, their bones are dry. They're dead. They're gone for a long time. That's the way he's describing himself, and he's saying that he has been made to dwell in darkness. And I want you to get that word in your mind, hopeless, because this is exactly what David is trying to describe about his condition. 
he has come to a place where he has lost sight of hope. And he's desperately trying to get his feet back on firm ground and grab a hold of the life preserver of hope. Because without hope, he knows he's going down. He goes on in verse 4, and he says, Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. To be overwhelmed, specifically the word that is used here, means to become faint or weak, or feeble. It's like when someone is overcome. At times in the past, I've dealt with people who were, um, their, their sugar levels crashed, and they went into diabetic shock. I don't know if you've ever encountered someone like that. You talk to them, and you're trying to understand. They're, they're not making any sense. They're speaking in, in a way that is not adding up. In fact, you would be tempted to think that they were drunk or that they were high on drugs, but they're actually, their, their sugar levels are so low that their brain is not working right and they're confused and they can't figure out which way to go and, and it's, a, it's a sad situation and they need medical intervention very quickly because that's a, that is a life-threatening situation. That's the idea of being overwhelmed, to be so Uh, overwhelmed with the circumstances, with the attack of the enemy, that you just have no idea what to do. You have no idea where to turn. Here, the psalmist is expressing, I know I'm in trouble, but I have no idea what to do to fix this situation. Finally, in verse 4, he says, my heart within me is desolate. And that word desolate means he is stunned. He is astonished. He is left, and that, that word means to be left without any hope at all. And that is the overwhelming sentiment of verses 3 and 4, is that the psalmist has come to a place where he has no hope. He's struggling to find some hope to cling to, and he's not sure where exactly that hope is. And this is why he's crying out to God. Now notice then, in verses 5 and 6, his concentration. Because we see his perspective change from hopelessness in verses 3 and 4 to a focusing of his attention. And he says in verse number 5, I remember. Now I want to point out to you the significance of that word remember. To remember means to go back and to see things that once were. And certainly at this time... It's clear that the psalmist feels that whatever has happened before, that's not what's happening now. But he needs to go back in his mind and remember some things. When you and I find ourselves losing perspective, it can be very helpful for us to remember. Our circumstances may at times cause us to doubt the power and the goodness of God. But remember, he's faithful. He has not changed. So whatever he was, he is, and he will be. And and what is so powerful about remembering, and specifically in verse 5, he said, I remember the days of old. He went back in his mind not with rosy-colored glasses 
But he went back and remembered what God did before. David, in particular, had walked with God through difficult trials before. He had been in very deep valleys. He had been in hopeless situations. And every single time, he had experienced God's faithfulness and God's mercy. Now he's looking back and he says, I remember what happened before and that gives me perspective on what is happening right now. You know, this is something just from a practical standpoint and our lives. When you get, when we get into the dead of winter, the middle of winter, it can be easy to forget that Spring is not that far away. Summer is coming. We can get to the place where we think, it's so cold, and there's the snow, and then we sing songs like, in the bleak midwinter, to encourage our hearts. And we think, oh, I hate this place. I just want to move somewhere where I don't have to deal with this. Maybe you feel that way. But you know the truth is, if you just look at the calendar, in a few weeks... It's going to be spring. The weather's going to warm up. The sun is going to come up earlier in the day. The the flowers and the grass are going to grow again. It's going to get warm. The birds are going to sing. Listen, it's coming. And, And it can be like that for us spiritually. We can get in places where it seems like I'm never going to get out of this trial. But if we just go back in our mind and we think, you know, it wasn't that long ago that I was experiencing the blessing of God. Now, you don't know how much longer it will be that you'll be in this trial, but that can give you some hope that, you know, this could change. I'm not necessarily going to be in this place forever. He remembered the days of old, but he also meditated on all thy works, all the works of God. There's a lot of works that God has done. There's a lot of things that God has done in our lives personally, but also that are recorded in Scripture, things that He's done for other people. You could think for a long time about all the works of God. He began to purposely put His focus upon the works of God. And specifically, it says that He meditated on those works. And that word, meditate, the way that it's used in the Old Testament means to murmur or to talk to yourself. It's the idea that he was, he was thinking about what God did and he was telling himself about what God had done. In other words, he's giving himself a little bit of a pep talk. And as he's meditating on the works of the Lord, this began to give him a new perspective in the situation that he found himself in. He repeats this idea when he says, I muse on the work of thy hands. To muse, he intentionally remembered and focused his thought upon the work of God's hands. He's reminded in this situation that God is a personal God, that God works in your life and in my life He is actively working with His hands in the world around us. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know, if when 
my children, if they get distressed at night, especially when they were younger, there was something about in the darkness, if I would just put my hand on their shoulder or rest my hand on their arm and they knew that I was near, it would cause them to calm down and to realize, okay, everything's okay. You know, that's the idea here that, that David is sharing with us when he thinks about the work of God's hands. It's a comfort to him. It's a consolation to him to know that God is near, that God's hand is seen. He's seen God's hand before, and now he anticipates seeing God's hand again. Because of his remembrance then, he reaches out to the Lord. And in verse 6, that's exactly what he says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. What a powerful and vivid description. As David is reaching out to the Lord and he's, he's hoping that God will deliver him. It's like a child that's reaching up to his father to carry him, to comfort him. He's reaching out to Jehovah and he's anticipating that the strong and capable hands of Jehovah will pick him up and will carry him forward. He's stretching out with his hands, anticipating to meet the hands of the Almighty. And he says in verse 6, My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Like someone who's in the desert without water, who has been longing for a drink, might be parched and dry and looking for the well, looking for a source of water. He describes himself in this way, only the water that he's desiring is the presence of the Lord. He's come to the realization that where he is, which is certainly a difficult place, he certainly is in a place of trial, but where he is, if God is there then he could be satisfied. His thirst could be quenched. There's a tremendous lesson for us in this. And I ask you tonight, do you long after God in this way? Do trials and persecutions bring you to this place where you are stretching out your hands to the Lord and thirsting after him? Or do your trials tend to cause you to become embittered and angry with God. Why would God treat me this way? Why would God behave towards me? It really is your choice how you will behave or how you will respond. But obviously, there's going to be a very different conclusion depending on how you respond to those trials. So he's really concentrating on his situation for sure, but he's also concentrating at this point on who God is. And that brings us to his call in verses 7 through 12. There's seven specific requests that he makes in verses 7 through 12. First of all, in verse 7, he cries out for God to hear him. Now, this is a repetition from verse 1 where he asks God to hear him. It's worded a little bit differently in this case. In verse 7, he says... Hear me speedily. So he needs for God to answer him now. God, I need to hear from you right now. I need you to hear me immediately. Why? He says, my spirit faileth. 
I, I, I'm, I'm running out of strength, Lord. I, I, I'm struggling to hold on to hope. I, my spirit is failing within me. I need you to hear me right now. And then he reiterates by saying this, Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. The pit that he's referring to is the grave. And in his perspective, it would be better for him to be dead than for him not to know that God could hear his prayer. Because David had come to the place where he would rather not live without God. He said, what would be the difference between me and someone who is already dead if you don't hear my voice, if you hide your face from me? Do we have that sense of desperation when we cry out to God, absolutely needing to be heard? Or do we treat prayer more like, well, if he hears me, fine. If not, I'll handle it myself. I, I got some ideas. I've got some, I've got some strategies, some things that I could do to solve this situation. You know, it's good for us in our Christian life to come, as it were, to the end of our proverbial rope where we have nowhere else to turn but to the Lord. He needed to be heard. He's asking God to hear him. In the first part of verse 8, he needs to hear God's loving kindness. In response to God hearing him, he wants to hear God speaking loving kindness to him. In the morning. That loving kindness speaks of God's demonstrated mercy. It's the practical outworkings of God's merciful attribute in our lives. And it seems that He had endured the long night hours with little or no hope. He wanted to hear the loving kindness of God in the morning. When the sun came up, He wanted to know that God was near and that there was a chance that He would be delivered. He's begging for God's mercy. The second part of verse 8, he's asking God for guidance. He says, Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. He says, I'm like an open book before you, Lord. I'm lifting up my soul to thee. I don't know what to do. I need you to show me the way to walk. I need to know the way, the path, the direction that I need to go. All of his desires, his motives, his aspirations were placed before the Lord, and he begs God to show him exactly what to do. Praise God, we have a God who works in this way in our lives, who wants to show us the right path. And if we come to him with honesty, and we open ourselves up to him, and we say, now God, show me what to do. He's the kind of God who wants to show us what to do. He needed guidance. Verse 9, he needed deliverance. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. He was running to God like a, a little chicken might run to hide under the wings of the mother hen. He needed God to deliver him. There were enemies in his life, and he was dependent upon the Lord to hide him from their attacks just like you and I are completely dependent upon the Lord to hide us from the attack of our enemy. In verse 10, he needed the Lord to teach him. I love this verse. Teach me to do thy will. 
for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. I, I was thinking about that. Him asking God to teach him. Teach me to do thy will. Do you know, you, you are taught things that you don't know. If you already know it, you don't have to be taught it. So for him to say, teach me to do thy will, seems to be indicating that he didn't know how to do God's will. And he needed God to teach him. And you know, that is the case with us. Because our natural inclination, our rebel heart, is to go the opposite of the right way. And we need God to teach us. We need him to instruct us or train us in how to do the will of God. You, you may not appreciate this or understand this, but oftentimes the trials that we go through are the schoolhouse where God teaches us about his will. Amen. He teaches us how to walk in his way. Mm-hmm. Now, he also knew that if he walked in God's will, that God's good spirit would lead him into the land of uprightness. God's path is not going to lead you astray. He's not going to lead you in the wrong direction. It's going to result in him coming to a place of practical righteousness, of becoming like the Lord, of seeing righteousness worked out in his life. If only God will teach him and he will respond properly to that teaching. Verse 11, he says this, fifth, sixth of all, quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. He needed to be made alive. This idea of quickening can mean to raise someone from the dead. It can also mean to renew strength or vigor or energy. And in this case, you may recall some of the things that he said up to this point that indicate he's devoid of strength. He's come to a place of desolation, of weakness. He doesn't have the strength to go on. And so he says, God, if I'm going to go on, if I'm going to press forward, I need you to quicken me. I need you to make me alive. I need you to give me the energy, the spiritual strength that I need. He's depending on God to grant him life in spite of how desperate the situation was. He's expecting that he could wake up in the morning and everything could be different. And isn't that how God works? Even in times of trial, times of darkness and hopelessness, we can wake up in the morning and all of a sudden, everything is different. There's hope. There's direction. There's there's clarity. It's making sense. I see what's going on. I see what God has been up to. Okay, it's been difficult, but I know where God is taking me. And he's saying, God, I need that. I need that quickening. His soul, it says here, for thy righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. His soul was in trouble and only God could bring him out. Now, his soul is his inner man. His soul is the deepest part of his being. This is his thinker, feeler, chooser. This is who he is on the inside. He's not only in trouble on the outside, his outward man Not only does it appear that everything is lost and everything is falling apart on the outside, but on the inside, he's falling apart. And he says, God, you're the only one that I could turn to who could possibly strengthen me and bring me out. And that, when God did that, he said, 
This would be for thy righteousness sake. In other words, this would be a tremendous testimony to the righteousness of God when God delivered him. And if you know something about biblical history, God did deliver him. And it was a tremendous testimony that God brought him out of that situation. Finally, in verse 12, he says that he needed defense. Number seven, he cries out to God to defend him. He asks again for God's mercy. And in God's mercy, he asks that God would cut off his enemies, that God would destroy those that afflict his soul. He needed God to work on his behalf, to to fight for him. He needed God to be his defender. He's asking God to destroy those who had arrayed themselves as his enemies. He's completely dependent upon God for this. But now I want you to see something about what he understood, which frames everything that he said in this psalm. There in verse 12. For I am thy servant. I am thy servant. What is a servant? Well, a servant is someone who is under the authority of another person. A servant lives for the master to do what the master is asking, to fulfill the wishes of the master, to to, uh, perform the role that the master wants them to perform. And here the psalmist says, in all of this situation, I've understood something. I am thy servant. Brethren, in good days and bad days, in average mediocre days, you and I are nothing more than servants of the Lord. And we need to come to the place where we are content for God to do with us whatever He wants to do, remembering that He is the Lord and I am the servant. Now this puts us in a good place. Because now instead of defending my turf or, or trying to, to make my way in the world or make my name and show everyone how important I am, I'm really just concerned about his reputation. I am his servant. And this is a good perspective in these times when we are overwhelmed. If you find yourself asking the question, why is God treating me this way? It could be helpful to be reminded You are his servant. Now, it's also comforting to be reminded that you are his servant because our master takes good care of his servants. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you alone. He's not going to forsake you. The basis of his prayer in verse 12 for God to defend him is this. I'm your servant. It's like he's crying out saying, I came here to fight for you. You need to send some reinforcements because I can't handle this battle. And these are the kind of battles we might find ourselves in. Tonight, you may be overwhelmed. You may be in a place where you have lost hope. You might be in a place where you're struggling to set your feet on a stable ground. You might be struggling tonight to have the perspective of what God is doing in your life. Let me urge you this evening to remember to come to God on the basis of His faithfulness, to cry out to Him to work on your behalf, and you might just find, like David did, that His God and your God is a very present help 
in time of trouble. When you're overwhelmed, it's good to ask God to deliver you.